Welcome to Inkwell, a podcast from Houston, Texas, for anyone engaged in the world of reading and writing. Inkwell is brought to you by Tintero Projects, which showcases the work of national and international Latinx and Latin American writers through readings and workshops, and Inprint, a literary arts nonprofit which, since 1983, conducts readings, workshops, and other programs to promote creative writing and reading and supports writers. Inkwell hosts Jasmine and Lupe Mendez, writers, educators, activists, and founders of Tintero Projects, will interview emerging and established writers from across the United States with energy, wit, and fresh perspective on what it means to ink well in this day and age. So welcome back, and you're listening to another episode of Inkwell. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Lupe Mendez. And I'm Jasmine Mendez, the co-host. And we are sitting here in the imprint house on a lovely Saturday afternoon. A little muggy. It's not muggy. It's not muggy. It's like dark, though. It's cloudy. It's not even that. Well, yeah. The sun's just a little out. So uh, it's been a good weekend. It's been spring break. Spring break. Is that... (laughs) We didn't spring do break. anything we, spring break I, I cut at the grass. <laughs> I cut the grass. Cut the grass. <laughs> Josh understands me. It's it. That's the deal. Um, so we're back with another episode. Another guest. Can you say hello? Hello. All right. And, uh, we'll be introducing him shortly. And, and then so lots of reading. Uh, let's see. Updates. Uh, I'm in my last semester of grad school. Woo-hoo. One more packet to submit for my MFA. That's um, exciting and Our kid learned how to clap how to her clap. hand. She's, she has one little tooth. I We're couldn't so even excited. finish the statement. <laughs> and she can sip water out of a straw. Yes. Lots of firsts this week. And <laughs> Still refusing to crawl. Still refusing to crawl. And okay. still wakes up at four in the morning laughing and giggling yeah. like a demented child. Um, okay. Aside from that. All is good. All is good. So one of the things we were talking about actually recently, um, as we do often in our conversations, is if we weren't writers, because our writer today is many things aside from a a, a beautiful writer, what else would would we be doing? Like our dream other career or some other thing like profession? We're both educators. We're both writers. But like, Lupe, what's the thing you would do if you could like redo all of your career aspirations? So I have three. I don't know how good (laughs) I would be at any of them, but so... I, so I, this is all because we've been also watching tons of Netflix, so whatever. Um, uh, architecture, I I love building design. So you mean like we could actually have money if you had like gone into architecture instead? You because you're bringing in the bucks because <laughs> you're bringing in tons of money. I kid, I <laughs> on my teaching job. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, architecture or um, do you is, even like math? What? <laughs> I mean, like architecture is like math, right? And geometry or lines or something. I so I had a hell of a time with trig, hmm. and had to that. transfer to typing in high school. So never mind. I'm not okay. going to answer this question Sorry. because you called me out on these two things. What's, what's the other thing? What's the other job? Uh, the, actually, I really was in middle school and high school. I was interested in um, forensic pathology, like the idea behind what happens to the body after a thing occurs. Um, but mm-hmm. then my mom was like, that requires like you digging into bodies after they passed out. I was like, that's, I could do that. And then my dad's like, you'll never get a date. And I was like, oh. <laughs> what does that mean? Like, that... were you scared of the date off or something? Because well, like, like, they, they ask you like, hey, what do you do for a job? Just say like, forensic pathology and they can like make up what like, that means. What like is fancy that? words. Like, that I'm a florist. Like... No, like that's not how that <laughs> works. <laughs> Just say forensics. And, and they then can if it. not any of that, then some kind of a, a chef. Like I spent oh, a lot of time. Right. Yeah, you do like to cook. Um, 
in high school uh, working as a wait staff and then also did like lots of cook, like working in the back with the chefs and mm-hmm. prepping food and stuff for catering department. So all was that that was all appealing. So if I wasn't any of the stuff I am now, mm. uh, yeah, I'd do some of that. What would you? So I think that the first thing that came to mind because I like a side librarian. Oh, shut up. I still might do that. That is not out of the question. I still might become a librarian um, or a bookstore owner. We could do that in our old age after we Old retire. age? I don't know. <laughs> we moved to Galveston at some point. Um, no, I would want to be an FBI profiler, except I wouldn't want to like have a gun and go after the serial killer. I would just want to like do the investigative part in the office and like draw up the file. So you're like that blonde chick and then, like, on, yeah, what on is Criminal that show? On Criminal Minds? But she does. She goes out and she like shoots people. No, she, she doesn't has shoot to. nobody. But I would want to just like, I like the investigative part or like the detective aspect without really doing like the legwork of being out in the streets. <laughs> I just want to like, so you can see I like PJs the research. No, no, I mean, I like, because that's like my thing. Like I like to research, but I like, I'm really interested in like the psychological aspect of like what drives people to like be like serial killers. Motivation. Like, like yeah, all of that stuff. So um, that or like a makeup artist, but for like sci-fi and fantasy movies, because they get really like, it's really intricate and cool. And, like, so you'd like, be working on Star Trek. Aspect. Maybe Even though you Star don't Trek. like Star no, Trek. I don't like Star Trek. Um, or like one of those That's props masters. Like when you make up like the props for those really cool like sci-fi fantasy shows and movies. You don't even like sci-fi. I, I can't don't, take... but I like that. I like that other aspect of it. That makes sense. But I don't like. No, you I like X Men. Um, do I have a third one? I don't know. I feel like like a yoga instructor because <laughs> like, I like yoga. Um, but yeah, I don't. I don't know that I would do. I know mean, when I was a kid, I always thought I want to be a pediatrician because I liked kids. And I wanted to like do that. And then I realized like med school was like insane and I didn't like science. <laughs> so I was like, that's not happening. Yes. I actually was a biology major and wanted to go to med school when my first year of college. And then I bombed out of biology. In college, you see, I bombed in out co- of biology I, oh, in high school. Oh no. <laughs> so I, like, I literally was like, I'm going to go to medicine and I bombed biology and I was like, oh shit, what do I do with my life? And so that took some time. Yeah. And then I. But your mom was a nurse, so that probably also why you were. Well, yeah, school. like I wanted to, because like, that was a big influence. So. And now my dad's in med school. But we won't talk about that. So <laughs> that's, yeah, another. that's another inkwell thing. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. Um, so you give some background on today's show and our guest. When we come back. When we come back after this. Uh, Josh, it's good to see you, and we'll take a quick break. second segment of Inkwell today. Um, and we have with us this afternoon, Fadi Judah. Did I say that correctly? Yes. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and Fadi Judah has published three books of poems, four with the one I have in my hands, uh, The Earth in the Attic, A Light, Text 2, and Footnotes in the Order of Disappearance. Um, it, and Text 2 is a book-long sequence of short poems whose meter is based on cell phone character count. He has translated several collections of poetry from the Arabic. He was a winner of the Yale Series of Younger Poets competition in 2007 and has received a Penn Award, a Banapal TLS Prize from the UK, the Griffin Poetry Prize, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. He lives in Houston with his wife and kids, where he practices internal medicine on top of all of the wonderful poetry things that he does. Not sure how 
he keeps up, but that's amazing. <laughs> so welcome, Fadi. He's also going to be um, with at our imprint, uh, Root Brown Margaret Reading Series. I think I said Margaret that Root Brown. Margaret Root Brown Reading Root series, series on March 25th, where I will be interviewing him uh, and Carmen Jimenez-Smith uh, that evening. So uh, welcome, Fadi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So uh, we usually like to open up uh, with a little bit of a reading. So if you'd have something you'd like to share from your recent collection, we would uh, love to hear it. Sure. Colored rings. I submit to the machine. I have a shredder in my office. A matera wrist, a maqam of earth. And when I die, I want to go to Saturn. Thank you for dreaming of me, for waking up to remember what you dreamed. I never wake up when I dream of you. What woke you? Was it someone else's body? Our small thrill and secret for safe travel and unspilled blood? Thank you for rolling your tobacco for me to smoke. The closer my lips, the closest my lips came to your fingertips and your tongue's glue to the air in my lungs. And for the beer, one after another, in the vicinity of a mafioso city without electricity in summer, until whenever we spoke. Mm. Thank you. It's so different, I think, like when you read it in your head and then you hear like the poet read it to just like bring it to life. That's nice. That's, nice. Yeah. The, um, so listening to all the, the other awards, congratulations on all the success. Um, Thank you. That's and then hearing the work, yeah. There's there's a level of what you end up hearing when you're reading it in head, and then the actual like truth of it. It's also a lot more calming because mm. in my head it was much more fricative than <laughs> than, than what you heard. Yeah. Um, so my first question, um, you know, obviously having read your bio and that you practice medicine and you're a poet, a well, very accomplished poet um, as well. Is you know when I was when I was thinking um, about your work and um, and and your writing and things like that. Um, no, you know, thinking about how like medicine is a practice or is seen as a practice, the medical practice. And then I, I know for me, I see writing as a practice and just kind of wondering if for you, those two ever converge or do you approach each practice differently or similarly, or how do you approach the, the, the page and the poetry sort of maybe verses or similarly to, I guess your, your medical practice. Um, I guess I take both of them seriously. Um, but, uh, you know, and uh, I sometimes pay attention to what happens in during the day in my medical practice that uh, would seem to offer a different sense of value than just um, uh, a transactional kind of behavior mm -hmm. uh, that is sort of mm -hmm. modern medicine. Mm -hmm. um, um, try to be open to learning. Uh, um, about life or people or myself, um, which doesn't always work out. Uh, I don't think we're any different in that than, uh, you know, uh, or I, I am any different in that than, than other people uh, are. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's it. I, um, I think the language of medicine as a, as probably with any other, uh, discipline or uh, a field of knowledge, 
uh, is fascinating because it has its own private mm-hmm. lexicon, and then that leads, you know, can lead you to think about where the words came from and mm-hmm. and why were they used this way or that, and um, um, so it, it becomes a journey into language as well mm-hmm. uh, that can be soothing for <laughs> for a writer. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's that, that, that's great because it leaves me to, like the other question too that I had because one of my um, I'm just gonna fangirl for a moment. Um, one of my favorite um, moments in in footnotes in order of the disappearance is um, that section. There's a, there's a line here in the poem progress notes that says. Um, Bell's palsy, perhaps, or what Mark Twain said about steamboat piloting, that a doctor's unable to look upon the blush in a young beauty's face without thinking it could be a fever, a malar rash, a butterfly announcing a wolf. And I thought, I think it's, for me, it's so beautiful because um, it's just sort of like a tragic beauty in, in, in that, uh, in that sense, because if you understand it, as a doctor or as a lupus patient, this idea of the butterfly rash, um, you know, uh, announcing sort of lupus, lupus Latin for wolf, right? You really understand the depth of that image and of that moment and of that, um, that just that experience, uh, within that poem. But if not, you just may you just see it as like a, a nice, right, a beautiful image, like a butterfly an- announcing um, a wolf. And so, I guess my question is like, how do you balance, um, right, the the language of medicine that you know and that is so familiar to you, with then sort of adding that or imbuing your poetry with that language, without maybe risk like losing your reader or you know um, distracting your reader, for lack of a, of a better word. Um, or do you care? Do you just kind of like this is my language, so I'm going to use it, right? Um, no, I, I do care, and uh, I do think that on many uh, occasions, especially when I sort of read my own work mm-hmm. after a publication, mm-hmm. that I probably risk too much uh, losing, you know, my reader, so to speak, or saying to the reader, "Well, you know, when I read, I have to look things up, so you can look <laughs> right. them up and right. and uh, you know yeah. um, go into that journey." I think the idea of double reading. Um, uh, which we often think poetry as one of those med- uh, modes of writing that asks us to do, mm-hmm. uh, to perform repeated engagement with the text. Um, that may not always be, you know, like what we say, you want a, a, a book of poems that you want to return to. Right. Um, that doesn't necessarily always mean the same thing as you want a dictionary while you're reading <laughs> <laughs> a poem. Um, so, but it's okay sometimes to feel that, you know, like in that poem that you, uh, read, uh, from, uh, progress notes, I think that there, there's that moment where that, um, uh, Malar rash is, is, is cushioned by the mention of Mark Twain mm. and, and the rest of the poem, um, and, the, you know, followed by butterfly and what have you. And then the rest of the poem, like you can, you know, we all go through a lot of any kind of piece of writing where you it's like, I'll get back to this word later. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, hopefully the poem itself does not, uh, has a lot more to offer sure. than just to have, have the reader feel estranged mm-hmm. uh, by a word. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, and that's my bias, feel like we... Um, live in a um, scientific age in a manner that has sort of been unfamiliar to us as a human race mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the past. Um, and uh, and so the language, you know, you could be a person who doesn't know much about science, 
but you know probably what DNA is. You may mm-hmm. not know what DNA stands for, <laughs> right. um, uh, you know, but you you do know some things about science. And I always found that interesting, again, because of my bias, to see how it can inform poetry, mm-hmm. um, since it is all language. You know, I've also been fascinated by the way um, in the scientific age we... Um, uh, or our age, whatever age it may be, uh, all these no- names that we give to things, <laughs> yeah. and um, but we we've made you know we sort of brought back to life that we've made a sort of a Lazarus out of uh, um, Greek and Latin mm-hmm. or ancient Greek and mm-hmm. and Latin, and so it became the language of science, mm-hmm. and so. Um, uh, if you look at taxonomy and botany and mm-hmm. uh, uh, entomology and et cetera, the, the, y- you have all these, uh, Carl Linnaeus, for example, the, the father of modern taxonomy, um, would use esoteric Greek myth names for naming certain insects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's always fascinating to me that, that the mer- merger between something so uh, ancient and dead has been brought back to life and also made uh, somewhat marginal, like specialized. Right, right. And so it's always interesting for me, how can I in my work leave, um, uh, you know, uh, if you call that the conceit of the writer, but um, uh, sort of leave a, a, or create a style or a signature uh, uh, through this language that I think uh, pervades all our lives. Yeah. yeah, that's great. And it's also interesting because you also translate. You're also a translator. So how does how does thinking about language in, in that realm sort of inform your work? And do you prefer do you prefer translation to your to sort of you know developing your your own poetry, or is it just like a whole different beast? Or what do you how, you know how do you feel about like just language and translation in that realm? Yeah, well, well, going back a, a little bit to the language of medicine is is you know it's a process of mm. translation to as you just read you know to kind of understand the uh, one of the uh, clinical uh, findings in lupus mm. to to translate it into a butterfly announcing a wolf, or you can be uh, assured that that is not an expression you're going to hear on medical rounds when you're <laughs> so true. Um, uh, yeah. when you're in training. Yeah. Um, so I have to sort of perform that uh, through uh, the... I, I was just thinking, actually, through the awareness of going through from one language into another. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you know, same thing. And in, in if one is to practice better medicine, for example, I'd have to uh, be able to understand disease enough to be able to express it uh, in a way to my fellow citizens or people, patients, you know, uh, uh, in a way that they would understand it. um, uh, The relatability of it. Well, just uh, in the language, the language yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, you and I have been sitting in a doctor's office and they're like t- saying all these things and you're like, I understood the word blood. Like, yeah. what, is, what else are you saying here? Yeah, yeah. and so, um, uh, and of course, maybe I, th- I think of that differently also, uh, having grown up speaking Arabic and, uh, um, and you know, I learned it quite well, um, that um, what it's like to live between languages mm-hmm. Um and what that offers, um, 
And, you know, sometimes these uh, expressions in one language uh, that when when translated literally, for example, they take on this kind of very emotive metaphor or um, magic proverb kind of thing that, that's, for example, like I, I've been thinking about proverbs, like um, um, you don't really... Um, there's a famous uh, expression in Arabic. Um, some of this I used in earlier poems, like in my first book, The Earth in the Attic. Um, there's a famous expression in Arabic from a famous poet in the 10th century. And uh, the saying is, uh, translates literally to, um, two things the sweeter of which is bitter. And if, if I were to write that in an Arabic poem, I wouldn't be able to give it the same this begins a poem in English, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't begin a poem in Arabic with that because everybody knows it. Oh, okay. But, but, you know, but you could, it's like, sure, sure. uh, imagining you begin, a, a, a an American poem by saying, you know, uh, 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 uh about, uh, almost as for, uh, was it horseshoes and grenades or something? Mm -hmm. Um, um, I, I don't know, you know, if I would, but maybe somebody else can pull <laughs> sure, it off. Sure, sure. Sort of like <laughs> yeah. a, a cliched idiom or some sort of like... Right, yeah, right. Yeah, and so it's nice. interesting to kind of just use these things for fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, but I, I do think that um, ultimately, you know, um, maybe it's a function of getting a little older. Um, uh, it seems to me that poetry is about... The best poetry is about a sophisticated clarity. Mm. Um, and uh, having said that, I would say that I, uh, I struggle with that. <laughs> so. Um, so pulling back a bit from that and then getting to some origin bits, what I guess sprang forth first? Was it the love of language and the poetry or was it the interest in the body and medicine? Like which which laid the groundwork for who and what you've been able to accomplish and do both career-wise now and art-wise, like which, which has always been with you the longest, I guess. I think that uh, I would imagine for any poet, it would have to be uh, the music of language in the brain that would have to be first because that, that sort of, that's what you're exposed to first. I couldn't really, you know, as a right, child, right, imagine right. myself, you know, but, but, but then, uh, being, you know, thinking of the body in this kind of scientific way or uh, sophisticated way, but obviously we do think of things since we're, you know, uh, from a young age, uh, in an analytical way. Right. And we have a leaning towards a particular mode, you know, analytic mode, uh, versus another that, you know, may lead to, um, being a doctor or an architect or whatever. <laughs> um, but, uh, but obviously I, I think the educational system as it stands across human cultures has a lot to do with sort of shifting one's attention to, to something, right. To something or the right. other, you know, um, whereas I think, um, poetry as a, you know, the, the music of language in the brain, um, is, you know, uh, Primordial, I suppose. Right, right. To use like to that. use the term loosely. Right. <laughs> yeah, this idea what? of like music in the brain—it's—it is a very, I feel like, doctor-appropriate way of <laughs> describing it. But it's also a very poetic way of describing it. Like that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, how did? I don't know. Like I can think there were 
there's a few or one or two examples of like, so my first language being Spanish, understanding like the, the level of language, even in, in kids songs, but then also in like rhymes that I understood first in, in native Spanish and the sing songness of that. And then looking at that the way it, it existed in English and it never interested me as much, but so that got me interested in, in readings and writings in Spanish. Did that exist for you at all? Like, did you come into, um, literature and poetry in uh, Arabic before the English or did the opposite effect where happen where you got into the English first and then let me see what this is in this, the, the curiosity being there uh, for the Arabic. How did, how did it kind of uh, come about for you? Yeah, no, no, I, I grew up in Arabic and, and so my sort of initial contact with the world uh, uh, was, was all, through Arabic and my uh, initial and deep relationship to literature was through classical Arabic literature and some modern Arabic literature. And, and one of the, the most endearing uh, aspects of that experience for me is finding out um, that, that a lot of these um, uh, foundational um, uh, uh, foundational uh, structures or uh, ideas in, in any literature as it relates to different languages actually merge, um, uh, you know, and so, so that's why I said it's a, it also goes back to this idea of the, of the primordial in a sense, um, because that's, you know, it doesn't matter how much uh, astronomy you knows, you, you know, you still look up at the stars right. and uh, you can, you, we still can't get over the fact that we are trapped in our own consciousness and, we're, and yet we're so little, but yet we can't stop thinking we're, we're larger, you know, or, or, right. or more, more significant than we are in the universe. Right. So, uh, so it's funny to think back and realize that human uh, literatures acro across various languages have for example, in this front, have always been um, uh, consumed and concerned, uh, consumed by and concerned with these things. Um, Man. So, so it, it gives me a sense of ease that it's not about um, um, having to figure out differences, right. which I think is a kind of an obsessive fascination we have culturally, at least in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's true. Mm -hmm. Do you ever find, um, this kind of goes back, I don't know if it's on topic or not, but it kind of goes back because I was thinking about it, like if your, I guess like your your right brain or your left brain, like your poetic brain, like which is like your medical or scientific brain um, are ever like in conflict or do you feel like they're harmonious and they work in tandem or is it two separate sort of um, thinking patterns when you're in, in one world or realm or the other, or is it just always influencing each other? I don't, I don't know. My wife says that for, for a, for a poet, I, um, my right brain is dead. So that, <laughs> so I don't, oh I don't know exactly. Um, oh um, but, but so for her, I obviously have a conflict. Uh, um, but I, um, no, I think it's fun. I, I, I mean, I think it's uh, much of what I said about always trying to figure out how does, a specific language, uh, mm -hmm. a, la a utilitarian language, sure, sure. Um, merge with something more, um, uh, I don't timeless, mm -hmm. ancient, mm -hmm. has a patina of time to it, you know, something like that. Um, Practice-wise, this just came to me. Um, so there's, and, and 
not comparably, but like looking at the logistics of how one writes, if a thing occurs in the classroom and though the thing that's happening to the one or the several students that I work with, I cannot directly, or I wouldn't be focused so much on writing directly of what that one instance was, unless it was something not associated with the classroom kind of thing. But like an idea will hit me and I will jot it down on a post-it and I save the post-it. Is there ever a moment when during the quote unquote, the day job that something strikes you in that moment, like this is the idea for something, I don't know, poem or prose piece or something. Is there a moment where you just like, and I've taken the notes on you and (laughs) side note for myself. Like, does that kind of happen sometimes? Sure. Yeah. 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 Good. It also yeah. struck me. Sorry, no. Go ahead. No, yeah, because no. <laughs> yeah, it struck me to the way that footnotes in the order of disappearance is is formatted, where there was sort of these um like kind of fragmented or, or lyrical uh, pieces followed by a prose piece, and so that was one of my initial questions too. Is just like, what situations or experiences do you decide fit more towards the lyrical versus more like the narrative prose experience? And do you like, does it just sort of naturally happen that way? Or do you differentiate like, you know, the apricot is going to be a lyrical piece versus, you know, um, something else like this moment in the morgue. Right. Um, I'm just kind of wondering like what your process is for, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe it was just for this book, um, or if you've done it in other works, um, you know, how, how your brain kind of works to figure that out. Yeah. I, I think that the, um, uh, you know, progress notes, the poem that you read from again is a, um, so it's a, it's, it has a, um, a narrative, uh, mm-hmm. or a monologue component. Mm-hmm. So it allows for, um, explication and, uh, development of ideas, uh, that are less associative. Mm. So a, a lyric, uh, would repeat mm-hmm. sometimes right, or right. try to introduce, um, either repeat old ideas or old feelings or chronic feelings, we mm. call them, or introduce something new on them with a certain sense of acuity or a sense of uh, new uh, flair or detail, um, but perhaps does it through, um, uh, I don't want to say uh, association, mm-hmm. uh, because that limits the lyric or understanding of the lyric poem to associative poetry, which isn't necessarily the case, but perhaps a better way of saying it or a different way of saying it is to, it links things through white spaces, greater white spaces. Um, uh, Whereas in the prose poems, I don't think the music is affected, but the conversational breath and the um, uh, informational detail um, uh, is, uh, um, thicker, uh, or more abundant. And I think that in many of the prose poems, I could end up, uh, breaking them up differently, sure. delineating them. Um, and it would still look like a narrative mm-hmm. piece, you know, mm-hmm. but I, not sure I ever saw the point for me mm-hmm. in long narrative pieces that, uh, you know, just like to put them in a prose block. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Um, I kind of along those same lines. The the question I had was, so having read uh, text you before, and then reading this collection, um, they're both beautiful examples of, of language. How did, like, how did the idea for one pop up, and then was the process of working on this next book was it totally different? Was it similar? Like. There's such very different, um, even how they're they're 
both the covers and the formats and the way the books themselves are, are organized. How did that play out for you? Was it was it just feeling the way through? Did you already have an idea in your head how you wanted it to look for the second book as what it was for the first? Like, how did that in these last two, how did that work out? Um, actually, some of the poems and footnotes uh, started or I had written those, uh, some a few of them before I even knew that text was a possible possibility um, and so but I uh, was was working on a manuscript um, and then I left it I mean I thought I had a manuscript there was an earlier draft or skeleton of footnotes in the order of disappearance mm -hmm. and I just set that aside and then suddenly a particular kind of energy in my life at the time because I was doing a lot of clinic work a few years back and uh, uh, gave birth to Textu because um, uh, at the time, you know, part of the new business of medicine is that you're, a, and I guess the new business of life right. is that you're on the phone, phone yeah. mm -hmm. and you're texting and you're communicating with your clinic director or your and your family and your friends and all sorts of things, and uh, and I realized that. Um, depending on the thread or on the person or on the event or occasion or the language changes. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, this is not a discovery. It's very right, simple. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I just began to think of like, well, what happens if I put like the excess energy from all that bent, uh, bent up um, uh, dailiness, if you will, into, into poems and, uh, a friend of mine, like I was texting a colleague, um, and I guess uh, we always texted each other in a particular pattern. Mm -hmm. And she wrote back and she said, well, well, these are haikus. And so I just thought, I, I you know, I stopped and I said, well. Here we go. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> I guess they are. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, well, you know, I, the idea, I mean, ultimately text to is a, it's just a book, the art of the short poem, right. you know, right. um, which has existed way before right. any. And so I looked into things. Actually, it was kind of fun and, and fascinating because the uh, uh, a couple of German engineers, uh, like, you know, software or informatics engineers, they, they're the ones, I think, who um, decided that the SMS yeah. would be 160 characters because they did some kind of a relatively, you know, kind of a loosely uh, um, precise, uh, well, that's an oxymoron, but, uh, <laughs> but some, some kind of, you know, they found out that telexes and telegrams in the past um, were that. averaged about 160 characters. Yeah. And so they said, well, apparently in the human experience uh, well, in the age what, of science, um, this is what, that's, that's what is enough. Right. Yeah. And so they made the electronic space for an SMS 160 characters. And I like the idea that uh, 160 characters then was assigned a price. Right. So it entered a capitalist democracy of the world instantly by 160 characters. And that then, and that some of us, like most of us here in the US, eventually get deals where you have unlimited texts. But most people at the time, a few years back, or I'm sure still to this day in the world, have to pay per text depending right, on their right, plans right, and so right. forth. And so I realized how these kind of numbers are also associated to 
a larger politics without having to speak about the politics. And also not to mention the fact that people were, um, uh, the, the Twitter revolution was happening. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and that's 140. And people had no sense of that. Like people saying, oh, yeah, you're 100. That's like Twitter. I'm like, no, it's not. That's 160, right, right. 140. <laughs> and, There's uh, a world of difference. And of course, there is, a, you know, and then you have the hyperlinks. And right. right. So, so the whole idea even of the math was suddenly overwhelmed by, by sub-math, of, electronic sub-math with the hyperlinks and so forth. And I thought these things were sort of under current conversations to what text two is, um, uh, which doesn't change the fact that they are short poems and they are about short poems and that's a separate conversation. But when we think of form and what, you know, Mm. how uh, any kind of form arises in poetry, I just felt like, well, what would be interesting to kind of um, imagine this relationship to character count? Because it seems like character count is governing our speech mm-hmm. in, in in a way, in, in a more significant way than we like to admit. The, the forced editing of, I already hit the count. And yeah. I that or just like, that. oh, this post is suddenly So my next paragraphs. book will be called Autocorrect. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love it. And you're here to hear first. Autocorrect. That's great. That's great. Um, That's awesome. Did you have? Well, I mean, the, the, the other... A really interesting thing that I just, you know, I definitely wanted to, to mention and kind of bring up is this idea, obviously, like in footnotes um, and in, 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 in uh, some of your other work. And actually, I'll say my first introduction to your work was through um, this a poem that made the rounds on Twitter, um, actually, which was the the, the short, it was a very short piece um, on... Uh, on on the daughter and the spider web on the Mimesis, bike. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I just like. I fell in love with that poem, and that, that was my first introduction um, to the work. But I keep telling my daughter, it was like my most famous poems. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even, it's, I didn't even write it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that was my first question. Well, you know, like, did your daughter actually say that? No, uh, I actually thought about that. I, I, I know the story, but yeah. the, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, and but you know, sort of that that turn at the end, or this idea of. Um, of, 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 you know, this is how, what happens to refugees, right? Um, and that uh, sort of echoing and, and being uh, one of the themes, I think, throughout this idea of the othered body, right, and the othered person. Um, and so just kind of wondering, um, you know, sort of elaborating for us, like, how, aside, aside from sort of the scientific medical side of things with, with the body, how else the body plays out in, in your work um, and, and how you explore that in different ways. Yeah, no, I, I, I um, you know, somebody was uh, said in some review of Louise Gluck's uh, work as that she's a poet of the body. Mm. And uh, I understand, you know, what they specified, but at the same time, I wanted to say, well, which poet isn't? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Because I, you know, which is not to, uh, you know, denigrate mm-hmm. the the comment at all, but, um, uh, you know, it, it's it's about how you manage the body, I think, or how you address it or navigate it. And so, and maybe I said that because I'm a doctor and I have to <laughs> deal in, with bodies and, and you know, uh, uh, and touch them. And they're usually not the bodies of people I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there are too many of them. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's my bias in, in reacting to that statement in that way. Um, um, and so, um, I mean, uh, I, uh, I think also of the word body as, you know, the world body and the body politique and the way we use the word body mm-hmm. outside um, 
uh, outside our immediate uh, relationship to the flesh and bones and that we carry or that carry us. Um, obviously, I think that as we all get a chance at life to live a few more years, um, we become uh, way into our bodies <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, because our bodies let us know that that they're the ones that mark out time or that are marked by time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we go back to the conversation I, we start, you know, the, what we started the conversation with, uh, about how, how do I bring science, the scientific language back into something like this, uh, mm-hmm. to talk about the, the, the age old, <laughs> uh, relationship of, uh, uh, that we have with, with our bodies and with bodies in general, you know, the earth is a body, mm-hmm. um, the tree is a body, uh, the bird has a body, your dog has a body, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. And so, um. And this idea of, of repla- you know, it, um, that the word body replaces, like, it's it, it encompasses, I should say, mind as well, mm-hmm. consciousness, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, to bring back body. Out, I think part of, of the, the um, maybe errors, I think, uh, necessary as it may have been, of the scientific age is to kind of create this Descartian problem of separating the uh, you know the spirit from the body mm. and uh, you know and to bring back you know an, an anatomist for example you know you put a cadaver you work on the body as if the body suddenly is just this you know bizarrely preserved spiritless thing mm-hmm. uh and so i think and now in the way we practice medicine in the age of technology you know people are a collection of organs mm-hmm. um uh, or a collection of bizarre cells who are acting out, uh, uh, what have you. So, so it's it's uh, also a way to hold on to that idea of um, wholeness, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, speaking of bodies, um, how does this space, the Houston, the surrounding areas, the greater Houston area, how does that inform? Any of your work? There's, there's, there's a, there's few markings in the collection um, in which there were like graciously, like when I'm reading a poem and if I can identify a certain space, like there was a mention of Empire, Empire Cafe. Cafe. I was like, <laughs> oh, I know that. That was on Tuesday. <laughs> and so, like, like I immediately, of course, because we're here, I'm drawn to that. But what other are there? Does it does the space influence? the work that you're creating or have created before um, and in what ways does it, does it lend itself? I mean, I would say primarily it, it, it offers me a lot through um, the stories that happen with people in them. Uh, and so there, there may be a lot more of Houston and Texas in my poems that, um, that are not associated with um, uh, markers or, right, or right, right, you know, right. landmarks. Right. Um uh, but yeah, there are those moments where Empire Cafe comes in, or the Rothko Chapel, or um, uh, or Palestine, Palestine Texas, Texas. Yeah. Um, uh, and and so uh, and and the Live Oaks. I have to say, I've just uh, it's like a really I know the Live Oaks and the Grackles. Like I think if I were to suddenly uh, after. I don't know, 22 years or 23 years in Houston, somebody just said, okay, you're leaving this town and you're not coming back. 
I think I will always speak of the live oaks and the grackles. Amazing. And I know that people will say, oh, but Louisiana, we have the real live oaks and whatever. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I don't think um, a major city in the world, let alone in North America, has the sort of magnificence of a tree like the live oak. Um, you know, again, with all the affection uh, to New Orleans. Um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, 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 because I think there is something about the live oaks here, the way they, I, I, I think, also represent the struggle that that urbanization has. Preach, preach, yes. With, right. with, you feel like with the trees are that we're trying to sometimes give the tree, you know. Um, sustain their lives or their normal life cycle and the way when you walk you're driving around and you see houses are built and then there's all these uh, laws about which tree gets surrounded and then you you know you're walking in your neighborhood and and even the magnolias here and you see that they're in distress mm. that's with laws right. and they're in distress from the building right. uh, which tells you that some botanist said, well, it's sort of like giving, giving them chemotherapy and, you know, but they don't have any illness to require yeah, that. Yeah. It's, you know, they, except us, we're their illness in a sense. Yeah. And so, and so in, a, in, a, in a way, you know, so I, I, f- I feel this bond to the trees here um, um, and uh, because, you know, they orient me in a certain good way. Beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, Man, that's okay. So that segues us into um, if you're comfortable reading a second piece um, to end our uh, this portion of yeah. the interview. Um, so if you have a second poem you'd like to read, after talking about the trees, though, uh, <laughs> I'll uh, okay. I open to it. Nice. <laughs> although although it does not, but we um, yeah, it's not uh, a tree that was very common in Houston, but hey. In a cemetery under a solitary walnut tree that crows had planted and whose seeds are hollow, I found a needle and with it I dug a well, dug and dug until I struck ink. The needle wove fabric for bodies it had injected with song. I painted the well's walls with quick climb and couldn't climb out. There was sun, there was moonlight that came into my sleep. I stored leaves and bark, but rain washed away my words. A lantern came down on a rope that a girl held. I sent up the part of me that was light. It's like my favorite poem from the collection. <laughs> you read awesome. it. I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> Total fangirl moment. Um, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Inkwell uh, with our guest, Fadi Judah. And uh, we'll be back for our lightning round. Our lightning round. And we're back. So, uh, this, man, uh, this is like it's I'm been a great conversation. Right? I know like, this is really good. Um, so here's the way the lightning round works. These, the other part of the interview was amazing and it was great, but folks did not listen in to this podcast. They might brush by all of that part just to get to the lightning round questions. There are rules because this is the make or break. This is the bread and butter. He always makes this more intense than what it is. And it's really just fun questions to So these are uh, 10 questions. uh, Do or die. Do or die. I'm going to close my eyes like 
like I do in the best moments of yoga. Yes. <laughs> which so, are rare. Rare, rare moments. Questions. Okay. We're going to give you the question and whatever first pops into mind. And I'll, I'm going to channel my Jimmy Fallon. That. And there you that, go. That's how, that's anyway. how it's done. That's what we're and, and then, uh, and then we, yeah, that's we'll it. So uh, you get 60, th- no, you want to do like 30 seconds. Well, they usually don't need a whole 60 seconds. Okay. So you get 30 seconds. We're changing the rule officially. Give me now 60 if it doesn't take. Okay. Okay. okay, that's okay. Fine. 60 seconds. 45 seconds. 45 seconds. <laughs> 45 seconds, uh, Josh, you it. got a timer. Um, 45 seconds to answer the question, and then that's it. Yeah. Right. Okay, so. uh, one, most rewarding moment in medicine. Who uh, just recently received an email from uh, a daughter of a patient I'd taken care of uh, who was, uh, the mother was dying of cancer, and the daughter sent me an email two months after her mom had passed away to tell me that every time I walked into the room, I was an unexpected, the most unexpected joy for her and her mother. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. And that's the show. Like, I don't even know where to go with that. That's awesome. No, we got nine more questions. Uh, okay, uh, question, that's awesome, man. Um, question two, most, remo- most rewarding moment in poetry. Hmm. It's usually when I write uh, a poem and I feel like a kid after having finished Aww. it. That's dope. Nice. Because I usually feel like crap. I know. This is awful. This is trash. What is this? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, go. Um, oh, first thing you do when you finish writing a poem. Sometimes I giggle like a kid. Yeah. There you go. Tongue, yeah. yeah. That's nice. nice. Cool. Yeah. Uh, for um, favorite language to write in. English. Yeah. Oh. Uh, oh, most interesting place you've traveled to to do a reading or for work? Uh, to do a reading uh, uh, was uh, Jaipur uh, International Festival and uh, Dhaka also in, in Bangladesh, the capital of Bangladesh, Jaipur in India. Yeah. Good. Okay. So this is now like a physical po- a question. Um, when you sit down to write, where are you sitting down to write? Right in my bad posture. Got it. Mm-hmm. Got it. Uh, last good poetry reading you attended? Last poetry reading I attended. Or, or good. <laughs> a good poetry reading. <laughs> There's a qualifier. I can't, I, I can't remember because I don't do many of those. Oh. oh. All right. All right, it's too cool. busy working. Right. <laughs> uh, favorite bookstore? Brazos. Mm-hmm. Uh, best place in Houston for a cup of coffee. Do you drink coffee? Yeah, I love okay. coffee. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm biased to Catalina. Mm, never been there. Where side of town is that on? Catalina is on uh, Washington. Uh, okay. okay. I, I don't know the cross street, but not too far from uh, Houston and Washington. Okay. I have a question. And they, they roast their own uh-huh. beans. Uh, it's called a Maya roasting. Mm. And uh, they're great, great beans. Yeah. This is not on there, but I have to. I have to ask this question. So, what got you into internal medicine specifically? Why that specialty? Youth. <laughs> <laughs> we, I I always think that the many of the choices we make in life are because we just don't know any better, and mm. time time for uh, a human body seems unidirectional. <laughs> it may not be, but that's that's. How it came out. That's how it came out. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Oh, man. Okay, so top five Palestinian foods, things, or people. Okay. Um, no pressure. Sakhan <laughs> <laughs> um, is food, uh, which is like a shredded chicken on a, a, a thin uh, layer of uh, bread with uh, sautéed onions and sumac. Mm, hungry now. <laughs> uh, and olive oil. Um uh, Mahmoud Darwish is definitely a great, uh, you know, uh, writer, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and uh, he died here in Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, um, my wife. Ah, there you go. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble there. So there you go. There you go. Um, two more. Two more. <laughs> um, and um, um, uh, the my, the way my parents speak. Their their Palestinian dialect. Um, and uh, and everything that Palestine has given me despite the loss and because of it. That's beautiful. That's awesome. Uh, and then you get the last question. Oh, should I say Palestine, Texas? <laughs> you could. I've never been there, so I don't know. Never it. Is this the question? That, yeah. Best place in Houston to see one of those? <laughs> or to get one of those to get one of what ah one of the things that I mentioned yes. well the books you can I don't want you to get my wife yeah uh, so it's no, like uh, yeah. his house well, she can't be like hi uh, <laughs> the um oh, although yeah, the she's food. she's free to make her choice and um <laughs> the, the, I guess Darwish can get that in a bookstore mm-hmm. um it's hard to find in restaurants you gotta oh, it's it? a house it's a so how many so yeah like I, we need to go like eat at a Palestinian restaurant. Like, how many are, there are in the city? Ones? Well, most most uh, Arabic food in the city are whether they're owned by Palestinians or Syrians or, or Lebanese or whatever. It's sort of like the Levant. What's called the Levantine area, right. you know, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine, kind of food or cuisine. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can um, find some of that in place like Fadi's or, uh, okay. you know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah there's a Fadi's. place, there's Abd- Abdullah Bakery on Hillcroft. It's a good place. Oh, we've been there. Uh, yeah. They make good falafel sandwiches among other things. Uh, Cedar's gonna, Bakery also, I think that's on Dunbar. I'm going to invite Lena over. Just tell Lena from watching. Like, hey, Lena, <laughs> cook for me. No. Uh, nice. Good. So, yeah. All right. So where can we find you? I know you will be at the, um, Margaret Root Brown reading series on March 25th um, at Rice. Yes, at Rice. Anything else you're you're up to, or just that reading? No, I'm I'm gonna be in. No, I guess I'm gonna be in uh, Portland and Minneapolis around a week. The week after that, sure, but, sure, uh, yeah. but no, I'm footnotes in the order of disappearance. Pick it up at your local bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> My buddy Judah, thank you. Uh, website or anything? No, I. I keep uh, low profile. Low profile. <laughs> That's good. That's it's good. too much work otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. We understand. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. And, and I'll probably see you at AWP because I will be He'll attending. He'll be at AWP in Portland. And, I will be at home with the child. And uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so I opted out this year. I was not going to go. I was like, I'm going. So yeah. Well, good. Good stuff. well thank you for having me. It's been fun. This was awesome. This was yeah. good. So you've been listening to Inkwell and uh, we will catch you for our next interview, which sounds really fast. But uh, it'll be soon with Carmen Jimenez-Smith, the other half of the Margaret Root Brown reading series. Uh, interview. So, interview, yeah. So we'll be interviewing her. Yep, next So time. I think so, yeah. 
So uh, enjoy your weekends or whatever. Whatever day of the week you're listening to this. this. (laughs) Enjoy it. Hopefully it's that long drive or not. um, And you're jogging. Who knows? See, here, listen to us next time. (laughs) I'm just happy that I didn't refer to this as a radio show (laughs) and do anything like a radio show because I have that bad habit. After these commercials. Yeah, right. Uh, Okay, so uh, thanks and uh, talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Inkwell, a collaboration between Tintero Projects and Imprint in Houston, Texas, a city with a wellspring of literary activity. Inkwell is hosted by Jasmine and Lupe Mendez of Tintero Projects, produced by Rich Levy and Krupa Parikh of Imprint, and recorded, engineered, and edited by Josh Walker with 150 Media House. Inkwell is made possible by a grant from the City of Houston through the Houston Arts Alliance and Imprint's other generous supporters. For more information, visit imprinthouston.org or tinteroprojects.wordpress.com. For feedback on this and future episodes, email inkwell at imprinthouston.org. We also invite listeners near and far to attend our readings and workshops. Until next time, keep reading and keep writing.